Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Chabar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name. Neither they nor their kings, by their whoring, and by the dead bodies of their kings at the high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and their dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Father, we praise you that you have undergirded um, our time in your presence by your promises and by your presence. Father, we thank you that you have caught our attention by your word as it has been read and as we have prayed in it and through it. Father, we praise you that you have said that what we need as women and men created in your image is to be before you and to worship you. Father, we confess that the cares of this world uh, threaten to take away our attention, to draw us uh, to different places. Father, we confess that our minds are weak and distractible. Father, we confess that we have seen um, enough of the wars throughout the world uh, this week in our news feeds and on our social media that we are undone and we don't know what to do. And um, Father, those words of Martha's just ring in our ears. Um, if you had been here, this would not have happened. Father, we praise you that we know in your word that you are here. And that we know in your word and through your word who became flesh that you have entered into our sadness. That you have entered into the world that you have created and the world that we have broken. Father, we praise you that you are acting out, you are accomplishing a redemption that so far exceeds our wildest dreams. And Father, we praise you that you have called us to pay attention, to see and to hear and to proclaim. Father, we confess that our doubt and our fears, our anxieties and our suffering, 
Father, our joys and our successes often cause us to pay attention to ourselves as if we were the center of the story. And Father, we confess what you already know, and we praise you that you have not given up. In fact, we praise you that you are determined to redeem all things and make all things new. Father, I pray that to a woman and to a man in this room, whether we know you as our Savior and Lord, or whether we are here trying to figure out, could I ever believe in a God like this? Father, we praise you that you have called us to pay attention and to think and to apply who you are, your character, and your actions to our lives. Father, we praise you that you have called us to joy and to hope. And we praise you that such joy and hope extend beyond circumstance and are anchored in your very character, in your work. Holy Spirit, we ask as we turn to your word that you would use it to get a hold of us to sharpen our minds and our hearts, to lead us to repentance and faith, and to set us free to worship. We praise you that you are God. We praise you that there is no one else. And we praise you that you are able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray all these things. Amen. Wow, a lot has happened in this service today. And uh, I want to encourage you, as the Lord moves in your hearts, to bow your heads and pray. Uh, do not resist that. Pray. Uh, and then pick your head back up and listen to his word. Uh, this is my last opportunity to speak to you out of Ezekiel. Um, and we are in this section of Ezekiel that we're calling the gospel according to Ezekiel. And it's taken us a long time to get here, but we have had two sermons already. Here's our third, and next week Nathan gets to bring us our last one in this study of Ezekiel. The study, it really is about the study of the glory of the Lord, the Lord's presence, right? And we have defined this for you. It's in the back of that order of worship with that outline of sermons. But it's defined like this, the ever-present, awe-inspiring power of God to give life and strength to His people. And as you read these words from Ezekiel 43 that Bryce read for us, we see that Ezekiel noted all three times that God's glory had appeared to him. When it appeared to him in the Kabar Canal, and he was in Babylon, when it appeared in his vision, when he was back in Jerusalem and the glory of God left the temple, and now in this section of Ezekiel, when that glory of God, the presence of the Lord, returns to his temple, right? That's what we have seen. It is the presence of the Lord that has always made God's people unique, right? Do you remember Moses, how God's presence led the people of Israel out of Egypt and to the mountain? And when the people sinned against God there on the mountain, even as they were supposed to be receiving the law that would really portray for them and, and, and explain to them the very character and the requirements of their God, 
how they sinned against their God. And, and God said, I tell you what, Moses, this is a hard and stiff-necked people. Uh, I'm going to let my angel take you to the promised land, but my glory's not going to go. And Moses says, no. If your glory's not going to go with us, don't send us at all, because who are we without you? Right? That it's always been the presence of the Lord that has made God's people unique. I want to ask you, do you believe that that is still true? Do you believe that that is true in your own lives? That what makes your lives unique is the presence of the Lord with you? The presence of the Lord with us. It is this presence of the Lord, as Bryce read again, the word of the Lord came to me, is what Ezekiel said. It is this presence of the Lord that drives the gospel according to Ezekiel. We have been in this section that we have called the gospel according to Ezekiel since chapter 34 and following. But really in chapter 24 is when there is a great transition in the book of Ezekiel. Do you remember what happened in chapter 24? You, you would have had to have read it. Nathan mentioned it, but we didn't preach from it. Ezekiel's wife died. God said, Ezekiel, I have bad news for you. Today, your wife is going to die, and I'm telling you, Ezekiel, not to mourn. In fact, what I'm telling you is instead of mourning, to wear festival attire and then continue your ministry. Really, from chapter 24 forward, the book of Ezekiel is about hope. I had a cousin who died when she was very young. And I remember at the funeral, my aunt and my uncle asked all of us if we would wear pink. Not just in honor of this favorite color of my cousin's, but in the expectation of the celebration of hope that undergirded her death. And the same is true in this book of Ezekiel. We've seen that in chapters 25 through 37, God has judged the nations both for their false worship and for dragging Israel into their false worship, right? In chapter 34, we saw how Yahweh proclaimed, I, I am going to be your shepherd. I will shepherd my people. I will go out and find them. In chapter 36, we heard God promise that he would give his people a new heart and a new spirit. In chapters 38 and 39, God in a mysterious way judges Israel's future enemies so that Israel might know in completion that this section that we are in, verses chapters 40 through 48, that God has dealt with everything that the Israelites have needed. And now God is demonstrating to them his perfect plan and his presence returning. That's what we're going to look at today. God's perfect plan and his presence returning. What's the context of these few verses that we're looking at? If you were to turn to chapter 40, which is the beginning, you would find that this is the 25th year of exile for the Israelites. Remember, it was the fifth year when Ezekiel started prophesying. He was 30 years old, so now Ezekiel's 50 years old. He's seen the glory of the Lord three times in all those years, and this is the 25th year. It's New Year's Day is what we're told in chapter 40, verse 1. Twelve years since the last time Ezekiel has seen a vision. 
And now in these few verses in in chapter 43, the high point of Ezekiel, the presence of God returning to his temple. The low point, remember, was in chapter 11 when the presence of God departed from the temple of Jerusalem. The people have for 25 years, to whom Ezekiel is speaking to, for 25 years they have been in exile They have been in slavery. They have been suffering. They have been sitting in judgment. What do you think those people in Babylon, God's people, the Israelites whom he has judged by sending them into captivity, what do you think they need? Let me sharpen the pencil a little bit. What do you think that you need When the silence and your suffering has gone on too long, what do you think that you need? Well, I want you to see in these four chapters God's plan of perfection that he reveals to Ezekiel and then his promise of his presence. It's just two things. Let's see what the impact of those might be. First off is the plan of perfection that he gives. Now, Bryce did not read those verses. For us to read all of Ezekiel would be very long and very difficult and very hard. And chapters 40 and 41 and 42, these three chapters are over and over and over. The one with a measuring rod walking with Ezekiel through the temple and measuring the temple. That's what chapters 40 and 41 and 42 are. And in the beginning of 40, Ezekiel has said, listen, pay attention to what you see and what you hear. And I want you to tell the people is what he's told in chapters in, in verse 1 of chapter 40. And then in our verses again, he's told the same thing. Listen to what you see and hear and make sure you declare it to the people. And what Ezekiel sees is a temple in Jerusalem that is perfectly made. It's symmetrical, it's designed, and it's built to perfection. What Ezekiel does, and any of you who who are architects, who are builders, would know this, that Ezekiel has walked through this finished temple as if the measuring one, the one who is measuring everything, is going through a tick list to make sure that everything in this new but empty house is made to perfection. And he's walking through it, checking everything. We're told in chapter 40 that Ezekiel is in this dream state. He's in this vision. He's taken to a very high mountain. He recognizes that it's Israel. And he recognizes that he has a vision of this new temple. And he's told, open your eyes and listen with your ears in chapter 40, verse 4. And why? Why does he need to do that? We're told very clearly back there that it is so that Ezekiel would set his heart on these things and that he would declare it to the house of Israel. Now listen, if you were to read those chapters, what happens is that Ezekiel enters into the temple through the east gate. He's in the outer court of the temple. From there, he goes up to the north gate, and he's shown the north gate. Then they come down to the south gate, and then they enter the inner sanctuary of the temple, the inner court. And there they walk in, and he looks into the holy place. 
And we're told that the one who measures the temple goes into the Holy of Holies, but Ezekiel doesn't. Then that one comes right back out and they walk out of the holy place and they go outside, outside of the east gate of the temple again. That is the pattern that they follow. It's perfect. The dimensions and the layout, the provision, this new temple. And chapter after chapter is given. And why is it given? Listen, you need to turn to where you were told to look on page 730 of those Blue Pew Bibles. And I want you to hear what it says in verse 10, right after the verses that Bryce read. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple. And now listen, why? That they may be ashamed of their iniquities and that they shall measure the plan. Ezekiel is told to describe the temple in all of its detail. One, that the Israelites to whom he's preaching and speaking, that they might be ashamed of their iniquities and that they might measure the plan. What leads the Israelites to shame when they see this perfection of a temple that has been laid out before them? What leads them to shame is the gift that God gives of this new and perfect temple in light of their iniquities. God's gift of hope. He's told Ezekiel, set your heart on this and declare it to the people of Israel. And he has said that perceiving and receiving this gift will lead them to shame in light of their past iniquities. It's God's gift in the midst of their exile that is supposed to lead them to shame. That's not the only thing that he says to do. He says to them that they shall be ashamed of their iniquities and that they shall measure the plan. What does it mean to measure the plan? God is saying, I want them to see the way that I am going to deal with them. I want them to pay attention to what I am going to do. God's plan is this as it unfolds in Ezekiel time after time after time, that it's God's gracious acts towards sinners that cause shame in us. God's graciousness to us that causes us shame joined with the gift of the new heart and the new spirit that we read from in chapter 36 that leads us to repentance and faith, to the holy life that God is requiring in the very verses that we read. This isn't the only place that God tells the Israelites, pay attention to how I'm going to deal with you. I want you to see that I am going to deal with you graciously. Chapter 16 is a verse we didn't read, is a chapter we didn't read. Nathan warned you about how um, um, uh, provocative these chapters are, but listen to how he establishes this same pattern with the Israelites there. He says in chapter 16, verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you. This is when they're already in exile, right? 
And you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord. God's gift of atoning, leading his people to shame. God's gracious acts towards sinners that cause us to realize our sin and with new hearts and new spirits to turn toward him in repentance and faith and holiness. Do you hear this? I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that this is God's plan? That he is gracious toward his people who are dead in their sins. And that's what makes us aware and ashamed of our sin is his graciousness. I want to tell you something. I have recognized this year how so much part of me believes that it's the different pattern at play, that it's shame for sin that causes repentance and therefore God gifts something graciously. But do you see how dangerous that is? That is so dangerous because what it ends up with is a graceless gospel. The pattern that is before us is that God is acting graciously toward his people in exile who are as well as dead in their sins and their transgressions. And that gracious act leads them to shame. And with the new heart and the new spirit that he has given them leads to repentance and to faith. You guys, this is from the Old Testament. God working in us by grace. This is in the Old Testament. Paul is the one who is able to say in Romans 2 that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. But this isn't new to Paul. You see, our sin doesn't just inhibit us from worship. Our sin kills us. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. But God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive in Christ so that we would see our sin and be ashamed and with new hearts and new spirits turn toward him and to worship him with repentance and with faith. God's grace precedes repentance. In fact, the amazing thing that is this pattern that's before us is that God's grace causes repentance. But are the people to be left with shame? Shame of this gift of this incredibly perfect temple? I don't think so. And I don't think so because of exactly what Bryce just read, the verses that are right in front of us. And the question that it leaves you and me with is, what transforms our shame to worship? What transforms it? This is God's perfect plan laid out to the Israelites through Ezekiel, 
But then Ezekiel sees what he sees in chapter 43, 1 through 9. Look at it with me again. What is being described? It is the glory of the, uh, it is the, glory of the Lord, the God of Israel, returning to his temple to be with his people, right? We are told that Ezekiel is looking at it from outside of the east gate. And he sees the glory of the Lord coming back exactly the way it had left in chapter 11. But it comes back into the temple. And it comes back among his people. Verses 1 through 4, we see what Ezekiel saw and heard. And then verses 5 through 9, we hear what God declares. Look at it quickly with me. What does Ezekiel hear in verses 1 through 4? It says that Ezekiel saw and Ezekiel heard. Ezekiel had what we might call sensory overload, right? He was overwhelmed when he saw the glory of the Lord. He said, look, it's the third time I've seen it. The first time I saw it was by the Kabar Canal. The second time I saw it was in that vision when it left the temple. But now in the height of in the high point of Ezekiel's, Ezekiel's prophecy, that, that vision is coming back into the temple. He said, I heard it, and it was like a great waterfall thundering. Have you guys ever stood underneath Vernal and Nevada Falls? Have you ever stood at the bottom of Yosemite Falls? Have you ever heard the pounding and the drumming of a massive waterfall falling? That's what Ezekiel said. That's, that's about all I can do is describe it like that. And then he said that there was an overwhelming brightness around this glory of the Lord. It was sensory overload. The very ground underneath it shone with brightness. That, that glory of the Lord was so bright. And Ezekiel, as he did in all of the other circumstances, falls on his face in front of the glory of the Lord, right? He just falls on his face. And we're told that the glory of the Lord passed over him and entered into the temple, right? We're told that the Holy Spirit doesn't leave Ezekiel on his face, but actually picks him up and takes him into the inner court of the temple. And that the glory of the Lord comes into the temple and into the inner court of the temple. And we're told that the glory of the Lord fills the temple. We're told that twice in these first four verses. Ezekiel is inside the temple and inside the glory of the Lord. And then verses 5 through 9 tell us what God declares. Look at it verse right here with me, excuse me, 6 through 9. While the man was standing beside me, the one that had measured the temple with him, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. God declares to Ezekiel in this vision, I am home forever. And I am in the midst of my people. That's the first thing that he declares to Ezekiel. The second thing that he declares to Ezekiel is what the impact of that will have on Israel. Listen to what it says. It says it right here in verse, uh, at the end of, of, of verse 7. And the house of Israel 
shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring, and remember, that's the description of worshiping other gods, and by the dead bodies of their kings, the statues of their kings that they would worship in the high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold, their doorpost by my doorpost, with only a wall between me and them, they have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whorings and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. God declares not only that he is at home among his people, but that Israel will cease their idolatry and will worship God. And then in verse 10, we are told, that Israel, that Ezekiel is to describe everything that he has seen to the people. Ezekiel, God says, tell my people this. You see, it's not just the perfect plan of the temple that Ezekiel was to proclaim to the people. This gift that God graciously gives his people while they are in exile, but it is also the promise of his presence. When did we ever see this temple? Well, the post-exilic temple that was built when Ezra and Nehemiah came back with the people from Babylon didn't have this structure to it. And you know, those who saw it said that they wept. And you wanna know why? Because the glory of the Lord was never made known in that temple. There's no description of it in the scriptures. We read later in chapter 43 that the east gate that God walked into was shut not to be opened. But guess who walked into that east gate on his triumphal entry when he came to Jerusalem, to his temple? Jesus Christ entered that very gate. Jesus Christ, who was able to say, that his body, his very person was the temple, that perfect temple that was given for us. This temple where God would reside with his people, when are we supposed to understand his presence that is given? Again, we didn't see it in the exile or, or after the exile when the Israelites came back. We didn't see the glory of the Lord come back to the temple No, we did not see it until Jesus Christ himself came back in the triumphal entry and entered that east gate. From there, he cleansed the temple. And you guys know the story of what happened to Jesus. Because of his claim of rights to the temple, Jesus was killed. Jesus died. But Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for us God's gracious act toward us while we were dead in our sins. The pattern explained for us here in Ezekiel. The temple veil was torn. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And the church now is made up of the living stones. God's very people, the women and men created in his image, among whom the Holy Spirit dwells. This church 
that because of Jesus Christ and the giving of the giving of the Holy Spirit, because of Christ as our head, is already perfected, but not yet, as this church continues to know its sin and to confess that sin. The only other thing that we understand to be this idea of the temple in the New Testament is our bodies, actual individual temples, we're told by the Apostle Paul, that already in Christ, that we have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives in us, this perfection of God's temple, but that which is not yet, so that Paul is able to tell the Philippians, listen, it's not yet, but I am confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ's return. Do you and I want to be in the midst of the glory of God? Because God says to the people in exile, this is what you need. My perfect gift for you and my presence. It is what you need. Do you and I need this? I want to say welcome. Welcome to what is supposed to be true, what is true, what is true of our corporate worship, what is true of the preaching of God's word, what is true about the power of the Lord's Supper? What is true when we come before our God in prayer into that very throne room to receive grace and mercy to help us of our time of need? Listen, this is what is given, God's presence. And why is our shame transformed to worship? Because Jesus, our great high priest, is not ashamed of us, but calls us his sisters and his brothers. Ezekiel is given this vision. And we might ask ourselves, is this only a vision with eyes of faith? And I would say, usually. The scriptures definitely point to that. But not always, right? We remember the Apostle Paul when he was Saul on his way to Damascus to, to, to persecute Christ's church and how he saw the glory of the risen Christ, right? There are stories throughout Christian history that talk about people who have seen this. We have been studying Thomas Aquinas. We've been reading him in this reading group. And if any of you ever want to join, you're more than welcome. But one of the things that is told about Aquinas' life is that at the end of his life, toward the end of his life, rather, not at the end, but toward the end of his life, he was celebrating the Lord's Supper and there believes that he saw a vision of the glory of God and never even finished all that he had written trying to explain what it was like because he believed that in light, in comparison to the glory of God, everything that he had tried to explain was empty as hay. 
just to be burned up compared to this glory? Is it for the eyes of faith only? Well, usually it is. But what about a spiritual experience of the glory of the Lord? The very thing that Paul calls us to pray for in Ephesians 3, that we would know the height and the depth, the length and the width, the measurements of the love of God, and that we would be filled with knowledge beyond understanding. That is an experience, an experience of the glory of the Lord. And why would I say that that is normal in the church? Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit that reminds us of God's pattern of dealing with us, that in our sin and in our death to sin, in our deadness in sin, rather, it's there that God graciously acts and gives us the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And there where he makes his presence known, the gathering of his people, where he promises to be with us, the preaching of his word, no matter how difficult it is, where he promises to work, and the sacraments that are powered by the very Holy Spirit. Prayer, where the Holy Spirit, we are told, teaches us how to pray and what to pray for and even prays with groanings for us beyond our understanding. This of the next to last sermons of Ezekiel is to be declared to the people of God because it puts before them the plan of God and the presence of God. And we see that here and now. I want to invite you to enter into it with me as we come here to the supper. Let's pray.